Hello there and welcome to Defiance. Listen, I know I've been doing this series called Chaos about US elections and division, but a couple of the interviews we were working on that were meant to be part of this week's show, they've just taken a little bit longer to schedule than required. So the next episode for that's going to be out next week. Now, I didn't want to leave you without a show, so I thought I would add a Bitcoin show. And I've got an interview with my friend Vijay Boyapati discussing the bullish case of Bitcoin, which is based on an essay he wrote a while back. Now, as some of you may know or may not know, I do have a sister podcast called What Bitcoin Did, where I talk to some of the most prominent figures in the industry about all things Bitcoin. And Bitcoin has had an incredible year going from a low of around $4,000 in March to just over $19,000 this week. Now, I've been getting a lot of friends asking me about Bitcoin, and I'm sure there's loads of people out there still don't know too much about it. So I thought while Bitcoin is doing well, I would dig out one of my favorite shows from the archive and share it on this platform. So this is actually quite an old interview. It was recorded back in December 2018, and of the 300 Bitcoin interviews I've done, I still felt like this was a good first one for people to listen to if they want to learn a bit more about Bitcoin. VJ does a really great job at laying out the basics and the essential case for Bitcoin. Now, if you do want to learn more about it, if you want to learn more about Bitcoin, my other show is What Bitcoin Did. That's available at whatbitcoindid.com. It's available on every single platform. And I've got interviews with all the biggest names in Bitcoin. And I've also got a comprehensive beginner's guide. So go and check that out. And if you've ever got any questions about this, you can reach out to me on my Bitcoin address, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com or peter at defiance.news. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you get a lot out of it. And feedback is welcome. Also, before you get into that interview, I do want to thank my sponsor Kraken, the best place for buying Bitcoin, consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a decentralized peer-to-peer digital currency without any central authority. By not having any controlling party required to validate transactions, Bitcoin is both trustless and permissionless. It is an opt-out of government fuckery, and as Edward Snowden said, Bitcoin is freedom. You can find out more about this at Kraken.com or download their mobile app, which is Kraken Pro, which is available on Android and Apple app stores. Outside of that, I hope you enjoy the show, and we will be back next week with the next episode of Chaos. Good evening, VJ. Well, it's evening here. I always say this to people, but um, it's probably probably a different time for you right now. That's right. It's noon here in Seattle. Right. Okay. Well, listen, we've got a lot to get through. Um, your article, The Bullish Case for Bitcoin, I think I've read it three times now. I read it twice when I originally saw it because I I kind of read it once and I was like, one of those things, right, I've got to do that again. And obviously I've reread it again for this interview. Um, outside of that i struggled for a while to find some of your work it was only then when i went to the um, uh, sorry mises institute work i saw some of your other writing but that was kind of your first big crypto article on medium right that's right i hadn't really written anything about bitcoin before then i had done an interview in 2014 where most of the ideas that i talked about in the article were discussed um but i i hadn't written anything that's right so we're going to work through that because i think I think is a good topic and there's loads to ask. But before we do, a couple of questions. Okay, first one's quite a simple one. Why Bitcoin for you? Wow, um, that's a very deep subject. So I got in, interested in um, Bitcoin in 2011. And uh, as a student of Austrian economics, I immediately understood that it was a monetary phenomena. And so that I found absolutely fascinating. How does this thing have any value? It just sort of comes out of thin air. Um, 
and I had been a gold bug for a, a long time. Um, and uh, actually, I'll, I'll tell you a story that I've never told anyone else. Um, when, <laughs> when I was a kid, um, my mother got a brain tumor and um, she was very ill and my father was very worried about her. Um, and I was born and raised in Australia with my sister, but my, my father and my mother were born in India. And my dad kind of panicked the idea that potentially he would have to raise and take care of two, uh, you know, pubescent children in Australia without his partner really scared him. And he, for a brief time, decided he wanted to take us back to India or go back to India for him. And at the time, there was no easy way of transferring money to India. The banking system was just horrendously bad, ramshackle. Um, uh, a bank could have multiple branches and you couldn't transfer money between a bank's own branches. Uh, so there's no easy way for him to transfer money to India. So he sold a bunch of his assets in Australia and turned it into gold. And I vividly remember as a child uh, going to India on an airplane with my dad carrying bags of gold and the sense of how terrified he was to be carrying his wealth in a bag that anyone at any time could rob him and he would lose all his wealth. So, so when I came across Bitcoin, I immediately understood its value proposition and, and why it was so unique and so special. It was digital gold except that it was easy to transfer to anyone, anyone, anywhere on earth. And it, in a way, it's like gold, except with this magical ability that you can teleport it. So I, I got interested immediately. Um, and uh, to tell you another story, uh, the first Bitcoins I ever got in 2011 uh, was due to a bet that I made uh, with a friend of mine I've heard this. Yeah, he's uh, the the story's kind of interesting. He lost the bet, and the bet was for a single silver eagle, which was at the time worth fifty dollars. And my friend, who had become interested in Bitcoin in two thousand ten, said, "Listen, don't take the silver coin. I can give it to you if you want, but let me give you bitcoins instead." And I had no idea what he was talking about. And um, he said, "Look." Uh, this is an amazing new uh, technology. It's a new form of money. And I really trusted him. This guy's brilliant and has introduced me to a whole bunch of things. One of the best investors I, I know. And so I said, okay, fine, I'll take it. And and so he was like, well, you have to download this software. I'm like, what the hell is this? So I, I, you know, I downloaded the, the core software and it started downloading the blockchain and it took hours and hours. It was a really small laptop that I was doing this on. It's like, what on earth is going on? What, I have to download gigabytes and gigabytes of data just to receive this thing. And he sent it to me and, and he showed me on a very primitive block explorer the Bitcoins that he had sent me. It was just a string of numbers and letters. And I was like, I don't know what this is. Okay, he gave it to me. And so, unfortunately, it was five Bitcoins. Unfortunately, those Bitcoins are... Uh, we're on a laptop that was taken uh, by my ex-girlfriend <laughs> at a time when they weren't worth very much. Maybe they were worth like $70. And so I didn't think of anything of it. And, and 
during 2017, as the price of Bitcoin was going up, I was like, oh man, should I contact her? Should I, should I say that a laptop has $20,000 worth of Bitcoin? Oh crap, 50,000, 100,000. And eventually I emailed her and she told me uh, that unfortunately it had been lost in a hotel in Minnesota. And so those big, those Bitcoins are dead forever, those five Bitcoins. And you can see them on the blockchain. They've never moved since they were given to me. So yeah, that's 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 how I got into Bitcoin. <laughs> Wasn't there like an estimated around 4 million Bitcoin have been lost? That's right, yeah. And I think it's because people in the early days didn't really appreciate what it was. Um, a lot of people thought of it as a medium of exchange, that that was its primary um, value proposition. And so they thought, well, I'll get some and I'll use it to buy, I don't know, alpaca socks or you know, weed or something online. But I didn't really care how much I have because it's a medium of exchange, just like the dollar is. And and they didn't understand it's really um, much more akin to gold, except it's even, it's even um, more scarce than gold. And so if this thing does get adopted, it's going to be worth a lot. And so people didn't take the security very seriously. And so you have people with stories of how you know, they had 10,000 Bitcoin on their hard drive and they threw their computer away and then they ended up going to the dump and trying to um, dig up their, their hard disk so they could get their private keys back. But, you know, I think that happens much less frequently now because people understand what it is and uh, much more aware of the importance of securing their keys and um, handling it kind of like digital gold. Right. So we're going to unpack your article. There's four parts. So we're going to do it in four parts, right? It was originally re- released in four parts. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And I've, um, I'm going to keep it in four parts because I think it's a good way of segmenting up the point. Um, so we're going to start part one, Genesis and the origins of money. So 2008, Satoshi drops a white paper. Tell me about what was unique about it. What did it, what, what did it solve? It solved a problem in computer science known as the Byzantine generals problem. And this was a problem that a lot of people didn't think had a solution. And so he had come up with uh, a system using what he called a blockchain to solve this problem. And, and really the first application of this system was to create a new uh, digital good, Bitcoins, um, based, based on his uh, solution to the Byzantine generals problem. And it, it was a profoundly important uh, innovation both in economics, because it changes our understanding of money and whether money can come out of thin air, uh, so to speak, and, and a profoundly important innovation in computer science as well. So in my article, I said he should be the first person to qualify for both a Nobel Prize in economics and the Turing Award, which is the equivalent uh, prize in computer science. But I, I do want to say one point of error in my article is that claim there is actually one person who did uh, win both. I was not aware of it at the time, but there was one other person. Who, who was that? Herbert Simon. He was an economist and um, made some amazing contributions to computer science as well. Right. Okay. So, so do you think Satoshi will eventually, I mean, let's start with one, the Nobel Prize for economics. Do you think that's something that will happen? I think he deserves it. Absolutely. I think this is the most important innovation to money in a thousand years. 
I do not think it'll happen, unfortunately, because the Nobel Prize Committee, I don't think they're going to give it to someone who's anonymous. And in general, I don't think they're as friendly to the kind of economics that uh, Bitcoin is built on. And, and so it's less likely. They've only, I think, given one Nobel Prize to someone who could qu- qualify as an Austrian econo- uh, economist. So I, I think it's very unlikely that'll happen, sadly. All right, so Bitcoin drops. What are the most important design features of the protocol? Uh, I think it's distributed peer-to-peer nature, um, which makes it very difficult to censor and to stop. And and Satoshi wrote early on that um, he was kind of mimicking the file-sharing system BitTorrent and he, he, he made a comment that a lot of these file sharing systems, the centralized ones like Napster had been easy to shut down, but BitTorrent was still going strong and people were transferring files on BitTorrent. And so he was mimicking uh, that sort of design, a distributed peer-to-peer network, um, which makes it much harder for a, a government to say, this needs to stop and we're going to outlaw it and the, the network shuts down. The other thing I think is incredibly important is its monetary policy, which is a a strictly fixed supply. There will never be more than 21 million Bitcoins. So Bitcoin is the hardest money that has ever existed. Uh, Not even gold, uh, which we sort of think of as limited in supply, is as hard as Bitcoin. More gold is mined every year. And if, if gold was ever to take off in price, it would unlock a lot of supply that we hadn't even thought of. People would start, you know, mining the seafloor and mining asteroids and that sort of thing at a, a sufficiently high price. With Bitcoin, it doesn't matter how high the price goes, no more than 21 million will ever be created. And and that's not something we've ever seen. We've never seen a monetary good, which is purely deflationary in that way. Okay. So Bitcoin is a great investment, but we're not going to give any financial advice. But hypothetically speaking, why would anyone want to buy a digital asset, magic internet money, which isn't backed by any commodity or government? Isn't that hugely risky? It is. It is a huge risk. But if you understand Bitcoin as a monetary good, we can understand and think about the attributes that make for good monetary goods and, and whether Bitcoin excels at those um, along those attributes. Um, I mean, the attributes that make for good money have been known since the days of Aristotle. Uh, fungibility, portability, um, divisibility, or those kind of attributes. And if you look at Bitcoin along those attributes, it absolutely excels. It's, it's scarce. Scarcity is another one of the, I think, the most important attributes. And so Bitcoin is more portable, uh, more divisible. It's, it's more scarce. It's also censorship resistant. So it, there's a, a huge segment of demand from people who, who want to keep their wealth in a non-sovereign store of value, something that cannot easily be seized. And there are people in places like China uh, who, who have built up wealth over you know, their lifetime who may want to leave China and they don't have a means of doing it if they use their sovereign money, if they use China's yuan. And so they will demand something like Bitcoin because it, it has the attributes which allow people to keep their wealth in something that cannot be seized, is easy to transfer and transport. 
So my view is that the economic case for Bitcoin is that it's a superior form of money to the types of money that we have available. It's certainly superior to fiat money. And I think it's also superior to gold. The one advantage gold has over Bitcoin is established history. Gold has you know, been used as a monetary good for 5,000 years. And so people have some level of trust in it. But I think the historical trust that people have in a monetary good is asymptotic, which means that over time, Bitcoin will quickly converge to the amount of trust that gold has. In the first few years of its existence, um, there's very little trust in Bitcoin. People didn't even know if the cryptography worked correctly. And then there was a concern about whether exchanges were easy to hack and, and so on and so forth. And I think by the time it's 20 years old, there will be near universal confidence that it will exist forever. In the way you can imagine that in, in the late 90s, people didn't really understand what the internet was and whether it was going to be an important part of our lives. That was when the internet was about 10 years old. If you fast forward to 10 years after that, when the internet was about 20 years old, and you know, around 2010, I think there was a widespread belief that the internet was a permanent institution in our world. And I think 10 years from now, the same will be true of Bitcoin. And if you think of its value proposition, then it's something that people will believe it is going to exist forever. It cannot be debased and it, and it cannot be seized or, or confiscated. So that's a, that's a, a very powerful set of attributes that I think is going to drive a lot of demand uh, in the next decade. Okay. But if societies converge to a single store of value and Bitcoin becomes globally accepted, but globally recognized, is there a significant risk to holders of gold that gold will devalue heavily against Bitcoin and therefore gold could lose its status as a store of value? Yes, yes, absolutely. That's a that's a really fantastic point. Bitcoin competes against other monetary goods, and uh, the value of monetary goods is game theoretic. They're not their value is not tied to some use value. That you, I mean, you can't do anything with a dollar bill. You can't eat it, and you can't build anything out of it. So, one of the points I make in my article is that the value of a monetary good is based on everyone's appraisal of everyone else's desire for that good. And it's a really hard concept to think about. But what it means is that you have all of these different monetary goods and they're competing with each other based on people's perception of which one's the best place to store their value. And so if Bitcoin becomes the reserve currency of the world, the things that will be hurt the most are competing monetary goods. Things like gold, and also government bonds, which are also sort of used as a store of value as well. That That's where I think you'll see interest rates rise. You'll see the price of gold drop. And I, honestly, I think you can already see this when, when you speak with young professionals and kids today and ask them what they think about gold. None of them are interested in gold. None of them have you know even thought about buying it. Um, but almost all of them have heard about Bitcoin. And so in the future, it's going to be the asset class that um, the people who are, are young today will desire. Kind of like what YouTube did to TV. You know, I've got two children. My daughter's eight. My son's nearly 15. His entire media consumption is YouTube and Twitch. And my daughter is pretty much YouTube 
the the only reason my son watches TV is for sports. And I, I really don't know what my, my daughter's pretty much just YouTube. They have no interest in traditional TV. So I guess it's the same scenario. And another point, actually, I've said this in a couple of previous podcast episodes, and you also, you cite John Pfeffer in your white paper, and sorry, in your uh, article. Uh, I don't remember sh- citing John, but John's fantastic. So, uh, yeah, he's thanked. He's thanked at the end. Oh yeah, he, not he, cited. He, sorry, thanked. Yeah, he uh, he read the article for me. Yep. Right. So I had lunch with him last year, and he said this brilliant thing that has always stuck with me, and I've repeated it a number of times. But he said. Fast forward 200 years and we're all flying around in our Millennium Falcons. Do you think we're going to be transferring and carrying lumps of gold with us? <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, well, I think you're right. Yeah. Well, one of the things I think is amazing is that you can see the future in the present if you're observant enough. And if you pay attention like you're doing to what your kids are doing, you can you can see what the future will look like. And, and I think the most astute investors could understand this they could understand that bitcoin is this new scarce digital good that young people are going to desire in the future and they're not going to desire gold and and that's hard you know for me someone who's a gold bug and who owns gold to think of that um when i when i first bought bitcoin i thought of them as an insurance policy against my position in gold and now I think of it the other way around. I think gold is my insurance policy against my position in Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> you know, if uh, there's a solar flare or something like that and all the computers on Earth are wiped out and, you know, no one knows who has how many Bitcoin, then maybe gold will come back. But I think it's unlikely. So going back to your article, I found it really interesting, the part where you talked about uh, how societies uh as they grew and expanded and traded cross borders and across seas, there were different and competing stores of value. And when gold became the first global store of value, uh, one of the benefits was the efficiency of trade because it was a globally recognized store of value. Bitcoin takes that one step further with the ease of which you can transfer it globally. So you say to me, um, you know, see in the future, you know, if the future is ready player one, and you're in a virtual world with people all over the world and you need to transact, you need something like Bitcoin, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, We live in a digital society and much of the value that is created today is digital. Uh, So so Bitcoin will become, I believe, the unit of account of the digital wealth that's out there. Okay, so moving on to part two, the attributes of a store of value. And I'm going to disagree with you a little bit in here, but let's go through okay. <laughs> the attributes of a uh, ideal store of value. Okay, it's durable. It's portable. It's fungible. It's verifiable. It's scarce. It has an established history and it's censorship resistant. Let's forget about fiat for now because the fiat compared to gold and Bitcoin as a store of value, it's, I think we can agree it's pretty crap. But let's compare with gold, right? You would say uh, gold is more durable than Bitcoin. I can't remember the rating I gave to gold, but I think I said it was more. You gave it an A, a plus. A plus, yes. I I should bring my chart up, but yeah, I, I think I recall saying that gold was more durable because gold has gold the gold that has been mined throughout history all still exists. The the gold that was used by the pharaohs still exists, and probably some of it is in gold bars in the Federal Reserve. 
vault. So yes, gold is very, very durable. But Bitcoin is more portable. Yes, it's it's much more portable than gold. And so if if you you know return to the story I told you about my dad going to India, um, I mean he wasn't taking that much wealth. But imagine if you're trying to transfer. 10 million or 20 million dollars worth of gold to india how difficult that would be physically carrying that alone would be very difficult but you you can walk across any border on earth carrying 100 million dollars of bitcoin and no one will ever know so that that is a very very powerful thing and i think it's one of the biggest comparative advantages bitcoin has over gold right okay i agree with you on that i think the irony of that story is aren't there restrictions now on taking gold out of india well this is taking gold into india um but yes there are restrictions uh india has all sorts of capital controls and and is running all sorts of crazy experiments on their own money uh so yeah don't go to india with anything valuable (laughs) you don't know if you're going to be able to keep it so you say gold is more fungible than uh, bitcoin because you can smelt down the gold create a new gold bar nobody will know the difference isn't that the same as mixing a Bitcoin? Yeah, it is. It is. Um, the point I was trying to make was that Bitcoin is fungible at the network layer, which means that any Bitcoin can be transferred on the network like any other Bitcoin. Um, but it's not necessarily fungible at the application layer, which means that uh, so the US recently banned certain addresses that, that they say are associated with Iran which means that if a, if a an exchange receives funds from those addresses they will seize those funds and and this i think is one of the the weaknesses of bitcoin is that it doesn't have very strong privacy technology at the base layer and so that makes it less fungible i, I think this problem i think this problem will be solved but it, it's it, it is a, a drawback of bitcoin the bitcoin protocol okay so I'm going to skip verifiable because it's kind of a bit boring. Divisible is kind of obvious. We know it goes down to eight decimals, so that's cool. Uh, scarce is great. We we understand scarce. And you say that's its most important characteristic, right? Yeah, I think that's where money ultimately gets its value from is its scarcity. Monetary goods, uh, if you look at the history of monetary goods, they've all had the same property that they're, they're relatively scarce. They're hard to produce. And if it ever becomes the case that it becomes easy to produce a monetary good, then they completely lose their value. So, you know, one thing people believe is that uh, gold is valuable because it, it, it looks good and it's shiny. It can be used for jewelry. Um, but I think that's completely backwards. I think it's used for jewelry because it's valuable and it's valuable because it's scarce. And when you flip your mindset that way, you realize why Bitcoin has a value proposition. It's ultimate scarcity. Right. So if Bitcoin does become the primary store of value, destroying the value of gold, people just won't be wearing gold anymore. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think so. I think that's that's a, that's a fair thing to, to believe. If people... Uh, gold gets you have to realize gold gets a lot of its value from monetary demand there's a huge fraction of gold that's held in bars in vaults not used as jewelry but held in vaults uh, at the federal reserve in china in germany in switzerland Um, and and if those guys dumped their gold the price of gold uh, would crater it would drop from whatever it is down to i think 50 dollars an ounce and then it doesn't 
really seem like something that is not as ostentatious or ornamental anymore because they're not worth anything. Um, and and in, in India, people wear gold as jewelry because they're keeping their savings on their body. So if if gold loses its value, then you're not keeping savings on your body anymore. You're keeping useless metal. Yeah, um, and I'm not sure how you would wear a Bitcoin, but I um, I've been to India and I was amazed how many gold shops, like jewelers, there were. It was incredible. It's their preferred way of storing wealth because they have a long history of a government which has debased its money. Yeah, took out the was it the five hundred rupee note? They just took it out of circulation. Yeah, yeah. You, you don't even know if the money in your pocket will be worth anything the next day because the government will just say, we're banning these notes now. Um, they're no longer legal because we don't like how they're being used. So yeah, gold doesn't, they don't have the ability to do that to gold. So Indians have loved gold for a long, long time. So what do Indians think of Bitcoin? Uh, I think the government in India has suppressed Bitcoin a lot. So it it hasn't been adopted as much as you see in the West, unfortunately. Um, and in a lot of ways, the Indian government is really oppressive uh, of its people and their ability to adopt new technology. Because fundamentally, the Indian government doesn't trust its people. It doesn't trust them to use new technology. And so, you know, if you want to use a cell phone in India, you have to jump through a lot of hoops to get that to happen. Is there a correlation between the how much of a threat Bitcoin is to certain governments' monetary policy and how much suppression exists? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I, I totally see what you're trying to say. And, and, and in places like Venezuela, I do think they're trying to crack down on Bitcoin. But there is, there is a really great irony here that the nation that should fear Bitcoin the most is the United States, because it has the res- it has the reserve currency of the world, which is the US dollar, and the United States has the most to lose if Bitcoin becomes the reserve currency of the world. And it, it is really ironic that the US is the most open to Bitcoin compared to, say, Russia or China, which they they could improve their geostrategic position a lot if they started accumulating Bitcoins in reserve and hastened its adoption as the world's reserve currency, they, they could hurt the US a lot. But, you know, they're more worried about its effect on their internal markets. Uh, so they have um, largely ignored Bitcoin or or have cracked down on it as China has done. So onto the two, I just slightly disagree with you on. So we've got an established history, and I think your D for Bitcoin now is pretty harsh. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> <laughs> because I I don't think Bitcoin needs to have as an established history as gold or fiat because technology moves so quickly. So I'm like, I think it's a C, maybe a C plus now. Because like you said, if it's still here in 10 years, it's here for good. Therefore, it's halfway there. Yeah. I'm a I'm a harsh teacher and uh, <laughs> I give low grades. So, but you're 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 correct. I I think there there is a Lindy effect, and um, if Bitcoin exists for twenty years, it will its existence into the future will be trusted almost as much as gold, which has existed for five thousand years. So give it give it ten more years, and I, I would give Bitcoin a B plus okay. on established history. And then censorship resistance, you give an A. But 
I think this ties into fungibility, right? Because if you can sanction a coin and exchanges can't accept it or have to report it, it's not really censorship resistant, right? Fully? That's true. It is a problem that uh, governments can identify bitcoins on the blockchain and say, we do not want you to use those. But those restrictions are usually within a nation. They don't apply across other nations. And and I think there was a lot made of the fact that Bitcoin was anonymous in the early days. And the reason that was the reason that people used it to buy illicit substances like drugs. But I think that's actually a mistake. Bitcoin's not anonymous at all. It's completely open. And um, it, it's kind of a law enforcement wet dream. They can they can see where everything is going and they can do an analysis and they can track you down years later. Um, the reason I think Bitcoin was so popular for uh, trading drugs online was that it was permissionless, which mean meant that no, there was no human intervention deciding which transactions could happen and which ones couldn't happen. And so if, if you use PayPal, for instance, and you try and buy drugs with PayPal, they will just stop you. They'll block your account. There, there was no equivalent for Bitcoin. There's no one saying you can't buy heroin online. And so I think it's the permissionlessness um, which made Bitcoin so popular for illicit trade, not its anonymity. So I don't know if you've heard it in any of my interviews that you've listened to. My Bitcoin story is kind of similar to your one, right? Yours was about your dad taking gold back because your mum was sick, right? My mum got sick and we wanted to buy her a certain treatment that you could only buy with Bitcoin. Wow. And so I had to go onto Coinbase, you know, uh, um, buy a Bitcoin, go onto one of these markets, buy the CBD oil, and then it was that was the real aha moment of like, oh, I get this now. This is kind of interesting. So, uh, yeah. Okay, so in summary, if that's uh, your graded report with your A's, B's, and C pluses, the, the little headmaster's summary at the end is fiat is just terrible. Gold is pretty pretty good. Bitcoin is excellent, right? That's right. The, and that that's why... Uh, Bitcoin will outcompete other monies is because it is superior along most of those attributes. Its biggest problem probably isn't really established history, durability, and fungibility, although the the scores are right. I think it's probably its biggest problem is convincing people that it doesn't have to be something you can hold in your hand to have value. Almost like the movement from CDs to MP3s. There were a lot of people who kept buying CDs. I was one of them. I've got like a cupboard full of CDs who kept buying them because I'm like, I'm not buying a digital piece of music. I want the CD with the inlay card, right? I haven't bought a CD in three years. I've got a cupboard full of them. I probably bought them for two or three years longer than I should. It's that kind of leap that's probably its biggest problem. Well, you're aging yourself, Peter, and me because I, I had the same mindset. <laughs> but but we know that that's not how kids today think. And so the, the process of convincing people is just a matter of time. Yeah. So there's four stages, right? And a lot of people will criticize Bitcoin because it's too volatile. But there's a, there's a sensible great answer for that. So can you walk through the four stages, explain what they are, and then explain where Bitcoin is in those four, those four stages? Okay, so 
I, I think just to set the stage for this, I think one of the biggest mistakes that is made by people in general is to think that money is a medium of exchange. And, and this is no accident. It's no accident the economics profession has defined it this way. Um, money serves other purposes as well, a unit of account and a store of value. Uh, and, and the reason that it's been defined this way, in my opinion, is because governments have constantly tried to destroy money's role as a store of value. And gold served both purposes. It so, served the purpose of a store of value and a medium of exchange. Uh, and, and gold was not rejected by the market. Gold was uh, demonetized by force. It was confiscated by governments around the world and it was demonetized that way. So uh, I, I just wanted to set the stage to say that most people think of money as a medium of exchange, but really money evolves to become a medium of exchange. And the stages of evolution of money are... The first is that money starts off as a collectible, which is something that is valued just for its peculiarities. Um, you can imagine um, ancient man picking up something, a, a shiny gold nugget, and thinking, wow, this is cool, and just wanting it because it's cool. Uh, and the same thing also applies to Bitcoin. The first people who obtained Bitcoin uh, or, for instance, the, the person who sold some pizzas for Bitcoin, why did he, why did he take them? They had no um, market value at the time. He took them because they were cool. And so they become a whimsy of the possessor, something that the person values in and of itself. The next stage, uh, once there are enough people who, who value the thing as a collectible, people start perceiving it as a store of value. That is, it's something that I can uh, trade for on the market because there are other people who value it and think it's cool. And, and as, as people start perceiving it as a store of value, they'll start holding it as a store of value. They'll think, this thing seems to hold its value pretty well and it actually increases in value over time, so I'm going to get some. And, and this actually hastens the process of becoming a store of value. It's a feedback loop. And this feedback loop ultimately ends when it's held by everyone as a store of value. Everyone wants a little bit of it because they recognize it's a store of value. And this is essentially what happened to gold um, and on a smaller scale other monetary goods like beads or seashells within their societies and then once once it's fully adopted once it's widely owned within a society as a store of value its purchasing power will stabilize because you don't have new entrants coming into the market demanding it um, so for instance people now have argued that Bitcoin is too volatile. Well, it's too volatile because the ownership base is so small. There's only you know a few tens of millions of people. So, in the early days when there was only a few thousand people, if you know a new person came along and said, "I want to put a million dollars into it," it's gonna it's gonna cause a huge spike in the price. And the idea that you can go from something that's worth nothing to being a trillion dollar store of value without seeing volatility is absolutely absurd there, there's no there's no straight there's no straight path from zero to um global store of value without volatility 
Um, so the the one last thing I wanted to say about the stages was there's well, one stage after medium of exchange, which is, it becomes a unit of account. And a unit of account means that you start seeing prices quoted in terms of that good. So for instance, uh, a loaf of bread is uh, a tenth of an ounce of gold. Um, and when you go to a store in your country, for I'm in the United States, you see prices in terms of US dollars. You don't see prices of goods in terms of baseball bats or in terms of shoes. You see them in terms of US dollars. So that last stage is the unit of account. But as you mentioned, this transition or this evolution through these stages doesn't happen in, in a smooth way. It happens as a, sta a series of um, cycles, these hype cycles. And, and one of the things I found most fascinating about Bitcoin was that we've never seen anything being monetized in real time like we have, we, like we are with Bitcoin. The process of gold being monetized took centuries, millennia. Uh, so we get to observe in real time what this looks like. Uh, and, and what we see is this fractal pattern where um, you, you, you get this huge boom and then a crash and then you get this plateau phase and it keeps happening except it increases in magnitude. And so if, if you take the chart of 2016, 17, 18 and you superimpose it on the chart of 2012, 13, 14, it looks almost identical. It's just bigger. Um, and, and and the thing that I thought was most amazing is if you look at the chart of gold from the 70s to, say, 2010, it exhibits almost exactly the same pattern. It's a, it's a perfect hype cycle. And, and so one of the things I speculated was that this is uh, an inherent social dynamic to the process of monetization. Uh, and, and one that we'll keep seeing until Bitcoin is widely adopted. So we cannot expect that this is going to be a smooth ride. It's going to be a series of booms and busts that get bigger and bigger and bigger uh, and in, until eventually it's global money. And there seems to be two very important hype cycles. One will be real institutionalization of Bitcoin, not just a few interested hedge funds or family offices, rich guys, but real institutionalization with Bitcoin traded as a product derivatives globally on every exchange, and then also a nation state cycle. Do you agree with that? Was there anything I've missed? Yeah, I agree with that. I think that'll be the latest stages of it, Bitcoin's monetization, especially the entrance of nation states. Um, a, a lot of uh, nation states are ideologically opposed to something like Bitcoin and establishment economists uh, in most countries uh, don't like it because it's not something that they can control or inflate and so they lose control of their monetary policy. And you're starting to see the first inklings of um, the existential threat that Bitcoin poses to central banks around the world. If Bitcoin becomes the reserve currency of the world, they lose control of monetary policy. And uh, and that's something that I think they will grow more and more concerned about uh, as these hype cycles continue. Do you think for nation states there's going to be first mover advantage? There's a huge first mover advantage. The person who obtains a store of value first um, increases their savings as it 
more widely adopted. So if you're the first, you could essentially change your country's monetary position on earth from being a podunk country to being one of the wealthiest countries if you're the first to add bitcoins to your reserves. And I think that's actually what's going to happen. I think some small country is going to come along and say, we should just get some Bitcoin. We can print some more of our own money and buy it. And uh, we'll keep them in reserve if this thing does become, you know, a billion dollars is really not much, even to a very small country. Let's put a billion dollars into Bitcoin and just sit on it. Uh, and then if it does become the reserve currency of the world, we'll leapfrog like 50 countries in terms of our national wealth. Uh, but so, it's probably not good to uh, publicly admit it when you're first doing it, right? Oh, absolutely. Like, you don't want to admit it while you're accumulating. You want to admit it after you've finished accumulating. There's every chance governments are accumulating now then. Certainly, uh it's possible. I think it would be a conspiracy that's hard to keep silent. So I think in Western countries, it's not happening. Um, I think it's probably already happened in North Korea. I think they've probably got teams of people who are um, hacking accounts around the world just to accumulate Bitcoin. Um, one, one of Another great irony is the US had a, a fairly large position of Bitcoins. And instead of keeping them and adding them to the reserves of the national treasury, they sold them. They, they confiscated Ross Ulbricht's Bitcoins, tens of thousands of Bitcoins, and they sold them at some horrendously low price. To Tim Draper, um, right? Yeah, to Tim Draper. Uh, it, it's kind of akin to the Bank of England selling gold, all of its gold, at the very bottom of the market in 1999. National governments are not very smart about uh, investments like this. So I don't expect the US government or the British government to be adding Bitcoin to their reserves until the end. And, and so they're, they're going to be at a huge disadvantage. Okay, so we've got part four. Okay, misconceptions real risks and then your conclusion so let's go through the misconceptions first bitcoin is a bubble yeah people criticize bitcoin as being a bubble and they use this term as a pejorative as if it's it's a bad thing my point is that all monetary goods are a bubble all monetary goods exhibit a premium uh price over what could be demanded for their use value alone and so if if gold price reflected only its use value, it would probably be $50 or $100 because it's not really used for anything. Maybe gold teeth and a, a small amount of it is used in electronics. Um, but its premium over its use price is really large. It's like $1,000. Um, and, and fiat currencies, the premium is even greater than that. It's like the whole value is, uh, is, is this monetary premium because you can't use fiat money for anything. Um, and, and, and so I, my response is yes, Bitcoin is a bubble, but all monetary goods are bubbles. And that's the defining characteristic of a monetary good is that it, it exhibits this bubble like phenomena where it's, it's, um, price level is much, much higher than you could justify by its use demand alone. Bitcoin is too volatile. So we've covered that. Um, transaction fees are too high. Yeah, and you need high transaction fees to secure the network. Ultimately, the block rewards uh, that miners get are, are going to converge to zero. And so without transaction fees, the miners have no incentive to, to mine and secure the network. So you need high transaction fees. And I, I think the problem here is that people don't, they're confused about what Bitcoin is. 
And there's, this confusion has existed since the beginning, the early days of Bitcoin. And the reason there's a confusion is because um, if you think about it in terms of um, species of different animals, in the embryonic stage, they actually look very similar. If you look at the embryo of a fish and a human in the early stages, they look very similar. And so Bitcoin in its early stages are, something that's a store of value and a, and a payment system um, look quite similar. So Bitcoin kind of looked like a payment system because uh, it was easy to transfer and it looked like the fees were low. So a lot of people thought, hey, this is a payment system. But it really is uh, a monetary base. It's the most trusted part of the, the monetary premium. It's where you do large settlement. Okay, two other misconceptions that competition, currency competition in crypto is a problem. Yes, uh, people have said that it's it's open source. It's easy to copy. Um, so why won't something else just come along that's um, better than it and overtake Bitcoin and Bitcoin will die? And I, my my primary argument here is that there's a very strong network effect uh, in place with Bitcoin. Um, it's the first one, and so it attracted the best developers. It attracted it has the most liquidity in the market and uh, has the, the, the most security. And so the network effect when it exists for any product or service is probably the most important feature of that product. Why did Microsoft Windows dominate for so long? It wasn't, it wasn't the best operating system. It dominated for so long because it had this very strong network effect where most of the applications were on Windows. And so if you wanted to buy an operating system, you wanted the one which had the most applications. And because most people wanted it for that purpose, most of the developers developed more applications for it. And so it's this very strong feedback loop. And, and I think it applies just as much to Bitcoin as it does to, say, Microsoft Windows or Facebook or, or products, which also have a network effect. So let's talk about the real risks then. And I think your first one is probably the biggest one, is the protocol level risks. So the recent CVE bug, whilst Jimmy Song went through the game theory and said exploiting it is difficult, but code has bugs and Bitcoin is code. And it's a global system that could eventually hold trillions of dollars in value. So that's a real risk, right? I didn't think the CVE bug was uh, a, that big a deal. I, I th when I talk about protocol risk, what I'm talking about is um, the discovery that the cryptography that Bitcoin was built on is flawed in some fundamental way and so can be hacked or someone can discover everyone's private key instantly. So then Bitcoin loses all of its value. Bugs, I don't think are as big of a problem because while Bitcoin is a software protocol and um, the, the nodes that run on the network run this software, if, if a bug is discovered, Bitcoin is essentially uh, a consensus of individuals running software and the software helps them come to consensus. But if, if a bug is found and people on the network think it's serious enough, they can also come to consensus to fork the network to remove the bug. So a bug is not catastrophic. There have been bugs in Bitcoin's past um, and, and they've been rectified. 
it would only be a problem if everyone decided that they needed to continue running with the bug because the bug was considered really important in some way. But but if, if it was something like one of the bugs that Satoshi found, which let anyone spend anyone else's Bitcoin, then you very quickly get consensus from everyone on the network, like, we need to fix this bug. And so that's not a problem. It becomes a software problem again, and, and bugs can be found and fixed quickly. So do you think the hacking of the cryptography or flaws in the cryptography is a significant risk? I've not really heard it talked about. I think it was a significant risk in the early days of Bitcoin because no one was really sure what Satoshi had done was even possible. I mean, even Greg Maxwell thought it, he, he was like, this isn't going to work. And I think over time we've um, become more confident uh, in the cryptography. But for instance, like if quantum computing is developed and and becomes cost effective, then it may be possible to break some of this cryptography. I'm not an expert on the cryptography itself, um, but this is what I consider an outlier risk. We we believe the mathematics are sound, but maybe at some point in the future, someone discovers some theorem which proves that the mathematics are not sound and could you know catastrophically. Uh, destroy bitcoin's protocol because of that okay risk two and i hadn't considered this again but exchange shutdowns and again i'm going to quote you the critical process of price discovery happens on the most liquid exchanges which are all centralized a coordinated global shutdown of bitcoin exchanges could the process of monetization be halted completely yeah it's the risk that i think is the the largest and most ever-present risk, and I think has actually happened quite a few times in various countries. Uh, China shut down all of its exchanges, and the US has regulated it, its exchanges. And the liquidity of Bitcoin comes from fiat money. When when monetary goods are competing against each other, it's a people's ability to trade back and forth that allows liquidity to flow from, for example, dollars into Bitcoin or gold into Bitcoin. And if you shut down that mechanism, it really uh, retards the process of monetization, really slows it down. So I don't know if it would completely kill Bitcoin, but it could certainly delay the process of monetization by like decades. Uh, If if there was a, a coordinated global shutdown governments came together at the g8 meeting for instance and said we need to ban this thing it's getting out of control and anyone who owns bitcoin that's illegal anyone who trades bitcoin that's illegal anyone who facilitates trade that's illegal that would really slow things down what you get is a lot more black market trading yeah see i kind of thought we'd got past that point of any risk with uh, major government shutting down bitcoin because it just feels like actually for whatever reason, a lot of Western governments have been uh, pro-Bitcoin. But then I start to consider, say, if we have full fungibility, that actually then it becomes a risk again because KYC AML is quite difficult, right? Um, you know, you're never going to see Monero on Coinbase. But if Bitcoin becomes, you know, say the base chain became private, would they have to remove Bitcoin? Yeah, and you know, regulators don't fully understand these issues. Um, Thankfully, to them, yeah, to them, everything they have a hammer and everything 
looks like a nail and so they want to smash everything so an example of that is banning these uh, um, so-called Iranian addresses you know someone who's technically um, proficient will understand that it's pretty easy to get around that like you can transfer them to other addresses you can mix them you can do a whole bunch of different things um, but you're right regulators might become afraid that it's becoming a tool of um, illicit trade or terrorism, or at least that will be the rationalization they use when they, they try and shut it down. Okay. We've got one risk, and then we can do the conclusion. The last risk. You've got fungibility as a risk to Bitcoin. Um, maybe risk isn't the right word. I think it's the biggest weakness of Bitcoin. And if you look at Bitcoin as... Um, as a technological development, there there were prior attempts at doing digital cash, like David Chalm's, um, I think it was called eCash, mm-hmm. uh, that had a lot more privacy features built in. I think it, it's a risk in terms of competition. If it were the case that another digital currency c- could create strong privacy guarantees Right now, Monero and Zcash allow for some level of privacy, but there, there's some big trade-offs that come with that. But if you could do it without the trade-offs, that would be a huge source of demand because the the ability to store your funds in a way that is completely private is a, a very desirable thing. You can imagine that there are hundreds of millions of people on Earth who would prefer to keep their savings in something which couldn't be taxed. I mean, imagine that you could keep all of your savings and not lose whatever, 20% of it or 30% of it per year. That There's a huge incentive to do that. So for me, the risk is that some other currency develops this first and in a way that it allow, allows them to overtake Bitcoin. I think it's unlikely because I think if it is developed, it could be folded into Bitcoin or could be folded into a higher, a higher layer protocol like the Lightning Network. So let's get to the conclusion. The article was the bullish case for Bitcoin. And then you go, 50 years from now, that monetary base will be Bitcoin. So you're pretty certain. (laughs) So one of the things that I tried to do in my article was be dispassionate and provide an economic framework for understanding what Bitcoin was. And really, it's the last sentence where I let my zeal shine through (laughs) and i hope i can be forgiven for that i I was trying to contain myself the whole time but yeah i i I do i think it it's hard for us to think about the way people will think in the future but my point of view is that if bitcoin exists 10 or 20 years from now as a human institution and its permanence as a human institution is strongly tied, I think, to its valuation and how people will value it. If people believe it will exist forever into the future, why not get some? Why not get one? <laughs> if, it, if this thing is going to be around when my grandkids are around, there's only 21 million of them. We still live in this historic period where it's possible to get one. And um, having one Bitcoin means you're there's no more than 21 million people on earth who can have more than you. So less than point, I think 0.2% of the world's population can have more Bitcoin than you. And that's, 
that's an amazing idea that that you can get one of the the, the greatest investments that that will ever be for such a cheap price now it's like buying manhattan for a quarter i think that's a fantastic way to end so but before we go firstly thank you this is brilliant this is exactly what i thought it would be secondly just let people know how they can follow you where they can follow you and who you want to hear from I, I love hearing from anyone who's interested in Bitcoin. Um, so you can follow me on Twitter. I'm real underscore VJ at Twitter. Um, I'm on Medium, but I only have... Actually, I have two articles on Medium. Most people don't know I wrote another article there. It's about Bitcoin taxes. It's not quite as sexy. Um, but yeah, Twitter is where you'll find me. And um, I, like you, am a father of two young children and, and, and I have a day job. So I don't, unfortunately, have enough time to write. I would love to write articles like this, like all the time. Um, and embarrassingly, this article took me six months to write. Uh, I started writing it when Bitcoin was 2000 on its way up. And I was like, oh, I can probably knock this out in two weeks. But you know, when you have kids, it's really hard to find spare time. Uh, and and by the time I finished it, it uh, the bear market had started. Um, so uh, my my point is that I, I write a lot more on Twitter because if I have uh, an idea, I can quickly get it out there, and it it doesn't need to be that polished. Um, so if you want to hear my take on other aspects of Bitcoin, find me on Twitter. Have you got any other articles bugging you that you want to write? I reckon there must be something there. Oh yeah, there, there's um, two other articles. I'll, I'll spoil the you know spoil the surprise and give you the titles now, and um, you can hold you can you can hold me to account and say where are they? You haven't written them yet. So the the two articles are um, the bearish case for Ethereum and the Ooh. great. <laughs> and uh the other article is called the great bitcoin skiism uh and i want to talk about the scaling debate and the importance of the scaling debate and how um the question of what bitcoin is has really been settled once and for all and how that's a great thing um for bitcoin well i think the bearish case for ethereum is the nice kind of maximalist contradictory article to the bullish case for bitcoin but I guess that article, you could replace Ethereum with a number of other coins and tokens, right? That's right. There, I mean, bearish case for most altcoins is pretty obvious, but I think um, the bearish case for Ethereum needs to be written because uh, I spent a lot of my career in Silicon Valley, and I do not believe Silicon Valley understands Bitcoin. I think there are a lot of people in Silicon Valley who think Ethereum is um, amazing and it's going to overtake Bitcoin. Even um, Fred Wilson, the great venture capitalist at Union Square Ventures, uh, actually predicted that that would happen. And I, I think that's badly mistaken because it, it misunderstands that these are monetary goods and it, it views them from the lens of technology. Uh, and if you view it from the the lens of technology ethereum seems amazing it's like this really global world computer that you can run any contract on that sounds great 
Uh, but when you view it from the lens of monetary theory, Ethereum has a lot of problems. Um, so I, I want to write that article and um, we'll see if I ever get to it. This has been fantastic. Thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I look forward to doing this again sometime. Thanks, Peter. It was awesome. Okay, thank you for listening to Defiance. I hope you did enjoy this interview with Vijay Boyapati. As I said in the intro, if you are interested in learning more about Bitcoin, then please do check out my other podcast, What Bitcoin Did. It's available wherever you get your podcast from, or you can head over to whatbitcoindid.com. Next week, we will be carrying on with the Chaos series, but if you have missed any of it and you want to find out more, that's all available at my website, defiance.news. Support from Defiance comes from Kraken, consistently rated the best and most secure crypto exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell, and trade Bitcoin. With 24-7, 365 world-class customer service, you can trust Kraken to support you, whoever you are, wherever you are. Available at kraken.com or via the mobile app, which is available on the Apple and Android app stores. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A. K-E-M-P-R-O.